Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Katrina Blouse. Hey Tom, I don't know about you, but it feels like every second person I know right now is talking to me about intermittent fasting. This is an eating plan that apparently switches between fasting and a regular eating schedule. And people are telling me that they've lost tons of weight. And not only that, they actually feel really better, like it gets rid of brain fog. I get too hungry, so I haven't been (laughs) able to do it. Yeah, I've got one friend who did it last year and it worked really well for him. And it's not a new idea. It actually goes back to the ancient Greeks who regularly fasted and also right through to the Kardashians who are big fans. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So in this episode, does intermittent fasting work? Some people can control what they eat just by not having much of an appetite or they can walk past the chocolate cake. But other people like to have rules. Intermittent fasting, that is our briefing topic. But first, here are today's headlines. It is Tuesday, May 17. The Coalition is continuing to defend its housing super policy after getting heavy criticism from former Prime Ministers and the super sector. So this policy would allow first home buyers with at least a 5% deposit to withdraw either 40% of their super or up to $50,000 from their account. So the head of Australia's biggest super fund, Australian Super Don Russell, says the policy fails on all scores. And Malcolm Turnbull, the former Liberal Prime Minister, told the nine newspapers it undermines the objective of superannuation and serves to inflate property prices. Housing affordability is largely a supply-side issue. Scott Morrison's job of selling this policy was made even harder by this admission from his own superannuation minister, Jane Hume. I would imagine in the short term, you might see a bump in house prices. So she was being honest there. Um, That got a bit tricky, though. That grab was played all over the news all day yesterday. I think um, there's many interesting discussion points here, Katrina. One is that this is one of the very few policy debates we've really had this election where there's a stark Mm. difference between the two major parties. Yeah, and I think that's why it's probably generating a bit more heat. But I sort of think this is an idea and we we have been, as you mentioned, devoid of ideas, well, seemingly devoid of ideas this campaign. Something does need to be done about the housing crisis. We were discussing this of of how much super you'd actually have Mm. as a young person and whether you'd even have $50,000 sitting there that you could withdraw under this plan. The average super balance of 25 to 29-year-olds is only around $25,000 for men, $21,000 for women. So 40% of that is about $10,000. That's not going to do much. No, it's not. The ideological difference between the two sides is quite interesting. You've got Labor offering to bankroll your loan and take an equity stake in your house and the Mm. coalition allowing you to take the money from your future self, basically. So they're pretty classic ideological positions of the two major parties. So people can really see where they stand on these kind of policy issues. But as you say, it's not just the upward pressure on prices, which this could cause. Also, you know, the problem of taking a retirement savings from yourself. But as you say... 10 grand, what what difference is that going to make for most people? PM Scott Morrison has refused to say whether he'll quit politics if he loses on Saturday. You must be Prime Minister thinking about what happens if you lose. Can we take it as a given that you would be no. standing down in that scenario? No, we can't take it as a given. I, that is, no, no that, that is not something I'm contemplating because I'm not contemplating on that being the scenario. OK. That's the Prime Minister finally going on the AB730 <laughs> program after many invites throughout the campaign. 
He also suggested that seats threatened by teal independents such as Kuyong and North Sydney are vulnerable because the people living there have been too insulated from economic shocks. As time has gone on, many of these places, I suppose, are less vulnerable to the impacts of the economy than, say, many of the places I've been in this campaign. So there you go. They're too rich. That's why they care about (laughs) climate change. And there's something wrong with that. Well, he also said that investing in the climate is contingent on a strong economy. And the Chris Dawson trial has had another interesting day. The defence has laid out their case a week after the trial began. Uh, The defence barrister saying Chris Dawson did not kill Lynette Dawson. He may have failed Lynette Dawson as a husband, but he did not kill her. Chris Dawson's explanation for his wife's disappearance is that she wanted to leave their marriage after discovering his affair with their teenage babysitter. Uh, He didn't actually report Lynette missing for six weeks, but posted an ad in the Daily Telegraph newspaper. And the defence has argued that police failures are to blame for Mr Dawson eventually being charged, claiming the investigation was plagued by delays, lost records and a deliberate disregard to follow up on reported sightings of Lynette Dawson. North Korea is in the grip of a COVID wave, but their state media is calling it a fever, which over a million people have now. Yeah, it appears that North Korea might be in denial about COVID two years into the pandemic. They've only just announced their first case and their first death last week. Pyongyang had previously claimed it had controlled the disease by sealing its borders early in January 2020. Yeah, so now that there's an outbreak, um, the leader Kim Jong-un is criticising the irresponsible officials over the pandemic response and ordered the army to help distribute medicine. And the country has low vaccination rates, which is a bit of a problem. And they rejected supplies of vaccines from the international community. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. All right, Annika and Antoinette are about to jump in to tell us all about this new diet everyone seems to be on, intermittent fasting. Hey, just a little note that the following discussion about intermittent fasting could be triggering if you are living with an eating disorder. Um, And if you want to get help, you can call the Butterfly Foundation, 1800 33 4673, 1800 33 4673. Intermittent fasting has been around for thousands of years. Hippocrates, of course, encouraged the ancient Greeks to fast. So did Plato and Aristotle. And and then, of course, there are the various religions that fast as part of fellowship. Think Islam, Christianity and Buddhism. But I guess if you don't care much for ancient thinkers and various gods, you've probably had mates boast about it or at the very least have heard Kourtney Kardashian spruik it on social media. A trendy new weight loss method has been getting a lot of buzz lately and it is called intermittent fasting. Eating plans that alternate between fasting and eating periods. Everybody's doing it. Fasting is one of the hottest diets out there. It's about cycling between periods of eating and plain old not eating. Mm, So as you'll hear there, in a nutshell, intermittent fasting is an eating plan which switches between fasting and eating on a regular schedule. It's touted as a way to not only manage and prevent weight gain, It's even believed to reverse some forms of disease. Now, probably the first big-time intermittent fasting diet was the 5-2, where you eat restricted calories for two days, and on the other five, you eat what you like. 
but keep calories pretty low still. Now, these days, there's 16-8, where you don't eat at all for 16 hours and only eat between, say, 10 and 6 p.m. Outside of that window, you're technically fasting. So is intermittent fasting a myth or a genius hack? There's a new year-long study and it's shedding some light on this, but it also throws some shade at this popular fasting method. Professor Lauren Williams is a nutritionist and dietitian from Griffith University and joins us now. So intermittent fasting is super popular in the US and it's gained momentum here. Can you just quickly talk us through what it is in those two most common intermittent fasting approaches? Intermittent means on and off. And fasting means intentionally going without food and drink. So when we put that together, that means spending part of our day consciously not eating. And obviously the other part of the day we are eating. That's the most popular type of intermittent fasting at the moment. Eight hours of eating and drinking and 16 hours of not eating and drinking. And I just want to start maybe with a bit of basic background biology in that that's to some extent a natural pattern. We eat part of the time when we're awake during the day and our body is in what's called the fed state. And when it's in the fed state, it's laying down nutrients. It's taking those fats, carbs and proteins and laying them down. When we go to sleep, we're in the fasting state. We're obviously not eating. And what happens is those nutrients come out of the cells of our body and get used up. So we spend part of our time in the fed state, part of our time in the fasting state, and that's natural. What intermittent fasting is trying to do is make us spend less time in the fed state with the idea that that will then lead to weight loss. Is this just another fad? You know, we have different diets like the Atkins diet, the grapefruit diet. There's been tea diets and cabbage soup diets. Ultimately, they're always hard to keep up. And what we're told to do is not to diet, to just change our lifestyle. Is this something you can achieve through fasting? Is it is it a lifestyle approach or do you see it as another fad diet? That's such an important point. I think we're always keen to hear about a possible new way to help us control our weight, right? It's a, some sort of shortcut to make it easier. Basically, there's nothing that um, makes it perfectly easy, but this method might actually work for some people. You could call it a fad, you could call it another diet. It might work if if you're restricting your eating between the hours of eight and four, which is the popular way of doing it at the moment, it means that most people then aren't eating their main meal at night and that cuts out a lot of calories or kilojoules. So the point is that it doesn't work magically because of the hours of restriction. The only way that our body will give up weight is if we eat less calories or kilojoules than we actually burn up. There are people who swear by it. For example, our, our wonderful producer, Dan, he swears by it. He lost 10 kilos in a month. But then there's sure. Annika and myself. We haven't had any luck shifting anything. For starters, Dan's a man, so he's got mm. that 
advantage in that men burn more calories and kilojoules. So whenever they cut down on energy intake, they're going to lose weight faster than us, which is just not fair. I know. It's one of the crosses that women have to bear. So it might be that it's going to take you a bit longer, or it might be that you just fitted all your calories, kilojoules into your eight hours. So then it's not going to change anything because like I said, it's cutting down on the total number of calories and kilojoules that actually makes a difference. So just getting back to that study from China, what they did was put everybody on the same level of calorie restriction, but then they got one group to eat that between the hours of eight and four and the other group to eat that whenever they liked. And the good news is that both groups lost weight. I guess the bad news is for intermittent Mm -hmm. fasters is that they didn't lose any more weight Mm. than those that ate whenever they liked. So that just reinforces the previous studies as well. And the advantage of this one is that it followed people up. It made them do it for 12 whole months. It made them stick to it and followed them up. But Previous studies have also shown that it's cutting down on the total calories, kilojoules that does it, not the actual hours in which you eat. So I think that's a really important point because I've heard people say, you know, you just eat whatever you want in between these hours and then you fast afterwards. That doesn't seem to be the case based on this study. No. It, it, It goes back to what you put in your mouth. Exactly. So if you're usually a person that eats fairly healthy foods over a 12-hour day, for example, and then you change to eating really high-fat foods in eight hours or high-energy foods in eight hours, you're not going to lose any weight. We are a bit out of balance in our society. So, you know, so we spend half our time in the fed state usually and half our time in what our bodies refer to as the fasting state. But in our busy societies, we have got a bit out of balance. Our eating day goes for longer than 12 Mm. hours often. So, you know, I had my first cup of coffee at 6.30 this morning and I'm not going to have my evening meal finished by 6.30 this evening. It's probably a good practice to monitor for 12 hours, but there isn't any evidence. That's probably just for good balance and good healthy eating rather than trying to lose weight. If the intermittent fasting is a good sustainable way of people eating, if they can do it forever, that's a good thing because we know diets don't work. We know that if you mentally go on a diet, like put it into your head, I'm on a diet, it's going to fail at some stage. But if it's a new way of eating and behavior change, then that's fine. And if it works for some people, it doesn't seem to be harmful, at least not in this study that um, monitored people over 12 months. So is it really down to what works for you? You know, some people might Mm. have this sort of lifestyle or job where maybe they socialise through work a few days a week, so they need to have more calories on those days and, and not on lesser days. Or, you know, some people need the rigor of getting up at the same time every day yeah. and exercising. Is it just finding something that works for you and that's why some people find success on fasting and others don't? I think that's it. And as you said, the rigor. So some people prefer to follow rules. Some people can control what they eat just by not having much of an appetite or they can walk past the chocolate cake. But other people like to have rules. 
So if rules-based approach to life works for you, then restricting the hours that you eat and not going beyond those hours will mm. probably work. And that's why things like, you know, Feb Fast, when cutting out alcohol, work for people instead of just cutting down. If they say, oh, I'm not going to drink at all in February, that's a rules-based approach. And for some people, that's going to work. And for others, it's not. Not everyone likes following rules. Yeah, it didn't quite work for me because I did dry July and I just replaced alcohol with like party-sized packets of Twisties and Doritos. So that didn't really work. But I'm, I'm just <laughs> because gonna... you felt deprived. Exactly. So, yeah. And that's why diets don't work because we feel deprived and then we break out of that state of deprivation. Going on a 16-8 or, or some sort of intermittent fasting, whether it's two and five days or, or 16 hours, eight hours, if that makes you feel deprived, it's not going to work for you mm. in the long term. If it's a sort of daily practice that works for you and makes you feel better, then it is going to work. I'm keen to look at BMI, the body mass mm-hmm. index, because, mm-hmm. I mean, that had has and sometimes continues to be used in some context. Um, but it's also been criticised as a little bit problematic because it doesn't take into account things like age um, or bone structure and fat distribution. Is the jury still out on whether BMI is a good indicator? BMI is a great indicator when we're talking about whole populations. That's its purpose. And it gets misused in applying it to individuals. Mm. So BMI is great when we look at whole populations and work out the risk of whole populations for certain diseases. But the individuals calculating their BMI and having, especially, you know, I talked before about men having a higher metabolism or needing more energy. The reason they need more energy is they've got more muscle, more bone density, and therefore they should have a higher BMI. But we don't have one BMI cut off for women and one for men. So you can have a really fit, healthy man who has a BMI in the overweight range because it's really intended as a measure for populations, not for individuals. If I could give anyone a tip to eat well and probably help you lose weight, it would be eat five serves of vegetables a day. I don't know why that hasn't taken off Mm -hmm. because that actually works and there's a lot of evidence behind it. What is a serve? Can you give us a, like, is it like the palm of your hand? What is a serve? People think, you know, I had one piece of broccoli. About half a cup of cooked veg and a full cup of salad veg. Is considered one serving? Yes. Okay. It's about sneaking in vegetables where we can. And we might do it in a, in a meal where we've got stir fries. That's quite easy. But the more we eat food prepared outside the home, the less we tend to eat vegetables. So that's been a, a kind of negative shift. There's very few Australians that eat enough vegetables. It's about 8% of the population that eat five serves a day. So if there's anything you want to do for your health, just eat an extra one serve a day is going to make a difference. That was Professor Lauren Williams, and she's a nutritionist and dietitian from Griffith University. Now, I don't know about you, but... I probably don't get enough vegetables. Five serves of half a cup, that's two and a half cups of cooked veggies. I'd like to think I do. I'm a pretty healthy eater, but that's a lot. No, it is. Uh, I'm definitely not part of that 8%, but I think the easy thing to do is to just to try, and I'm going to try and pick up one more serve a day and take it from there. The, only, the other takeaway I got is um, 
don't replace one bad thing with another. And if you want intermittent <laughs> fasting to work, don't just gorge on food in the time you're allowed to fast. And you know, Don't deprive yourself. <laughs> and there is no silver bullet. Eat less, move more. Listener.